The message today is entitled, Married for Eternity. Married for Eternity. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the incredible love and mercy and grace you have as you prepare us to be your bride without spot or wrinkle because you have such a fabulous honeymoon for us and such a life of joy. Lord, thank you. Open before us today the joy of marriage with you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen. In this journey, we go through some very difficult times of darkness. But it's important that as we go through those times of darkness, we not lose sight that the groom is simply taking from us every mar and every filthy thing the devil has been able to load on us. We are a work in progress in preparation for the wedding of eternity. And all of it is based on passionate love on the part of Jesus. There is nothing in it of smallness or bitterness or anger. None of it is of criticism and judgment. All of it is pouring out of the heart of Jesus Christ as the Father and He and the Holy Spirit as one work together to bring about what all of the universes are looking forward to, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. I want to be there. We begin to get a glimpse of this in the book of John. Now, I love John because... John is not just a gospel. The writing of John is to walk into the deep underside of the meaning of Jesus' life on this earth. He opens for us things that are hidden in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He unveils the depths for us of his love and passion. Now, I don't know what the third day was in chapter 2. There's much disagreement over this. But I think the third day in chapter 2 of John, verse 1, has a very significant meaning. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. So Jesus is, through the gospel of John, equating his resurrection from the dead with the marriage. In other words, the bride price was paid. And on the third day, he arose from the grave 
to rise up to marry his bride. There was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Scholars think that maybe this marriage was the Apostle John's marriage. Because Jesus and John were related. And the scholars believe that Jesus' mother is there and has a vested interest in the success of this marriage. But as the party goes on, and it often would last for a full week, I have wondered how long the marriage supper of the Lamb will last. I wonder if it's a thousand years, because it says a day is like a thousand years. I suspect the millennium is the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, they've run out of wine. This would shame the groom. It would shame the whole family. Wine was essential to the celebration. And so the mother of Jesus, she had lost her husband, Joseph. She now relies on her sons. I suspect she relied most heavily upon her son, Jesus. And she comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. They've run out. And I suspect she's a bit panicked. And Jesus answers her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Or what have I to do with this problem? This is not my problem. Mine hour is not yet come. Well, what is the hour of Jesus? It is the crucifixion of Jesus. That's the hour of Jesus. And he's saying, it's not time for my crucifixion. Now, what I want you to see is what the Holy Spirit showed me. Jesus has a very specific agenda, and he is carrying that agenda out day by day in the salvation of the human race. But there is, in the process, your heart and mine, and we come to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I have a desperate need. And he's saying, That's not my concern. Why should I step in and do anything about this for you? This is not on my to-do list for today. May I tell you that one of the ways of God that I have discovered, and it's found in numerous places in the scripture, is when we come crying to Jesus and we have a desperate need, he is always going to respond most often to that need 
by saying, why should I do anything? Of what concern is that to me in the kingdom? Now, he's not saying that out of a hardness of heart. He's saying that because he wants to elicit a specific response from our hearts. If we say to him, oh, I'm sorry, you're right. You don't need to be bothered about that. And we walk away. He lets it stand. If we say, oh, never mind, there's somebody else I can ask. He lets it stand. If we say, you know, I'm sorry I bother you, Jesus. I didn't think you'd answer me anyway. But I had to ask you. But I've got another way to work this deal out. He'll let you walk away. And he'll let you try to work your deal out. And he will always hesitate long enough so that it looks like you're going to die in that situation to see whether or not you will try to work this deal out with a more cooperative person. The front side of Jesus is always going to be uncooperative with you. Because he wants you to reveal the secret of your heart. And we find that right here in this story. Jesus could have stepped up to his mom and put his arm around her and said, Mom, don't worry about it. I've got it. Thank you for coming to me, Mom. You know I've always got your back. Jesus didn't say any of that. He said, it's not my business. It's not your business. What are you doing? That's God's approach to us. And so most often, we walk away. We did our prayers. We walk away and we figure out another way to handle the problem. And then we say, oh, look what God did. No, God didn't do it. Our plastic did it. No, God didn't do it. Our ideas did it. Our guerrilla ability did it. And God lets us do that. Because we've revealed a heart of impatience, of uncleanness, of pride, And we turn him away because we think he's turned us away. I want you to see what elicits the response of Jesus. And it works every time. It always grabs the heart of Jesus. His mother turned to the servants. She's no longer addressing Jesus. She's turning to the servants and she says, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So I come to Jesus and I ask and I'm put off. 
And I say, Jesus, whatever you say, I'll do it. Doesn't matter what it is. Whatever you say, I'll do it. You say to those around you, we're in a hard place. Whatever Jesus says to you, please just do it. Don't argue with him. If you argue with him, we're going to die. Just do it. Listen, that's where the prayer chapel is right now. It looks like we've been withstood by Jesus. And we have been. He's pruned us. I can claim no ability in judgment. I can't make any claim of being right. I can't make any claim of anybody being wrong. All I can say is, whatever Jesus tells you to do, please just do it. If he tells you, to repent of a specific sin, quickly do it. If he convicts you of anger or bitterness, and he says, get rid of it, do it. If he says to you, come in the prayer closet, do it. If he says, give your money, do it. Whatever he says, just do it quickly. The only way to enter in with Jesus is to do what he asks you to do and to do it quickly. There were six water pots or stone jugs for purification of the Jews. Some scholars say probably that could hold as much as 120 gallons. And so now, with sweat, they begin drawing the water up out of the deep well and pouring it into these purification jars. And very plainly, John is symbolizing something of vital importance here, that we do not get clean by going through our rituals. You know, what an idiot I am. How could I be so dumb? Why would I do that? Self-flagellation is one of the most popular ways of dealing with our guilt because it allows us to not repent. We can punish ourselves, and when we've punished ourselves sufficiently, we can then go on with our lives. Jesus is saying, look, the purification process is moving from the ceremonial systems and from your personal rituals, it is now moving to the blood, to the wine of Jesus Christ. He alone has the power to satisfy the thirst of your soul. They fill the pots. And now Jesus is not finished. Please, when Jesus gives one order, you can be very sure there were soon going to follow another order. Do it. Whatever the orders are, do it. Draw out now and bear under the governor of the feast. And they did it. 
And when he tasted the water that had been made into wine, he didn't know where it had come from, but he said in verse 10, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men are well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the best wine until now. I want to tell you, the wine of the blood of Jesus Christ is the very best wine. And there is more than enough wine in those 20 gallons to give every person there as much wine as they can drink and then some. There is an abundance of the cleansing power of Jesus to purify us and to cause us to be prepared to go to that great wedding feast where the love will flow from the heart of Jesus for his bride. And then it says, this is the beginning of miracles Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifest forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. This miracle was not for the public. It was for his disciples. And he probably had four disciples at this point, maybe five. This was not for the crowd. This was the beginning statement of Jesus' ministry. I am preparing a wedding for you. I want to marry you. I love you. And the disciples saw this, and they believed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I would change that just briefly, if I may. But have everlasting joy in marriage with Jesus. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. Might be saved. Now let me become very, very practical with you, please. Romans, the sixth chapter. I'll begin reading with verse six. Knowing this, that our old man, that is the one of our heart married to the devil, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death has no more dominion over him. Verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves 
to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what this is all about. It's a wedding ceremony. It's a a wedding feast being prepared for us. But there is a work of repentance that must be completed if we are to enter into that feast. And I know the work right now of the prayer chapel is to carefully do what Jesus has said to us to do, and that is to repent because of his great love for us and to finish a work. So I'd like to walk through several very specific things to help you examine yourself in the immediate presence of God. Repentance is never general. It is always specific. I've learned that I usually don't move very much until my feelings begin to be involved with my actions. And then I'm moving quickly. But I cannot speak to my feelings and say, arise, because they won't rise. I have to deal with my feelings indirectly. They are a result of something else happening. We have so many, so many things that distract us from this work of salvation that God wants to accomplish in our hearts to bring us to the altar for the marriage supper. These things prevent us from feeling any emotion about our relationship with Jesus. Those distractions must be shut down, turned off, cast out of our hearts. And then we must begin in a very concrete way to examine ourselves before God. And as we carefully evaluate the true reality of our hearts, great emotion will begin to flow and give us the courage to deal with those things before a holy God and allow him to bring us into full healing in preparation for that marriage. These are some of the things that we must carefully examine. One, a secret sense of pride. An exalted feeling in view of my success or my position. Because of your good training and appearance and because of your natural gifts and abilities, 
an independent spirit, being married to your opinion, and having strong opinions. This comes out of pride. I'm right, you're wrong. Do it my way. I've already made a judgment about you. You're dumb. You're not as smart as I am. Whatever it is, it's out of pride. And we've got to go back and look at that. Love of human praise. A secret fondness to be noticed. Drawing attention to ourself. Always speaking about me. Number three, stirrings of anger or impatience. But worst of all, you call it nervousness or indigestion, a touchy, sensitive spirit, a disposition to resent and retaliate when reproved or contradicted. Giving a piece of our mind to somebody. Telling them what we think. You should. If you just do it my way, that has to be carefully examined and put away. Self-will. A stubborn, unteachable spirit. A talkative spirit. Harsh, sarcastic expressions. Unyielding, headstrong disposition. A driving, commanding spirit. A disposition to criticize and pick flaws when set aside and unnoticed. A peevish, fretful spirit. A disposition that loves to be coaxed and humored. Number five. Carnal fear, a man-fearing spirit, a shrinking from reproach and duty, reasoning around the cross, a shrinking from doing your whole duty by those of wealth or position, a fearfulness that someone will get out of the spirit and thus offend and drive some prominent person away, a compromising, holding back spirit. Always wanting the easy way. Never wanting to lay it all down. Number six. A jealous disposition. A secret spirit of envy closed up in your heart. An unpleasant sensation in view of the great prosperity of someone else. A disposition to speak of the faults and failings rather than the gifts and virtues of those more talented and appreciated than yourself. Someone can serve you with great love. But quickly that's all forgotten and judgment flows when they appear to be vulnerable. 
Number seven, a lustful stirring, unholy actions, a carnal leaning, undue affection and familiarity toward those of the opposite sex, wandering eyes, looking the second time. Number eight, a dishonest, deceitful disposition, evading, covering the truth, covering up your real faults, leaving a better impression of yourself than is strictly true, a false humility, an exaggeration, a straining of the truth when it's to your advantage. Number nine, unbelief. A spirit of discouragement in times of pressure and opposition. Lack of quietness and confidence in God. A lack of faith and trust in God. A disposition to worry and complain in the midst of pain, poverty, or at the dispensations of prescriptive divine province. An over-anxious feeling about whether everything will come out all right. And number 10, formality, deadness, a lack of concern for lost souls, dryness, indifference, Lack of power with God. Selfishness, love of ease, love of money. These are some of the traits which generally indicate a carnal heart. If one principle is lurking there, you can depend on it. They're probably all there. We're called by prayer and fasting to hold our heart open to the searching light of God until we see the groundwork shift and move. The Holy Spirit is by confession and faith to bring the old man to the death. It's time for us at the prayer chapel to not patch over anything, but to literally go to the bottom. One of the most fruitful places to look for why God is withstanding us is to ask about the secret places of our life where nobody knows. those secret places that we have kept locked up, places of false refuge where it's unclean. Secret relationships, secret vices, secret life.
As we go to the bottom with Jesus, his love becomes more and more evident. His mercy becomes more and more evident in our life. As we determine that we will walk clean, as we determine we will not turn aside, we will not take the easy road, we will utterly submit to Jesus. And we make the decision that we will no longer be a lone ranger. But we will settle into what God has called us to and where he's called us to. And we let the Holy Spirit begin to move deeply in our hearts. We let the Holy Spirit begin to step into the reality of our day-to-day life and begin to transform us, change us, so that our rituals are no longer the same. We don't go to the same places anymore. We don't play the same games anymore. But there's a very clean straight way where we've said, I want Jesus. I want heaven. I want to be married. I want the the marriage of eternity to be mine. I've tasted of the Lord and he is good. And all religion is put aside. And now come and I say, Jesus, I love you. I love you. And you cannot say that to Jesus and not have it begin to overflow to your brothers and your sisters. And you begin to take concrete steps to repent to people you've wronged. You give up self-condemnation. You now begin to own the glorious path you're on toward that feast, that wedding feast, where you are united forever with Jesus Christ. So that your testimony is, I love Jesus. I love you. Let's journey together toward heaven. Let's make the pilgrimage together. Doesn't matter what it costs. Let's go together. You'll strengthen me. I'll strengthen you. We'll pray together. We're on our way to heaven. I'm calling today for you and for me to lay aside every distraction because the purpose of the National Prayer Chapel is not to be a church. We will be, but that's not our purpose. Our purpose is to be used by Jesus Christ 
to bring revival to Washington, D.C. That's our purpose. Our purpose is to be so united now with Jesus Christ and so united with our brothers and our sisters in love that our heart is poured out for the lost and the dying of Washington. Now, the pain and the anguish of the journey can become so great that we lose track of the lost and the dying. It's when we come back into that love, that first love with Jesus, that the pain of our heart is healed. And he begins to supply us with what we need. And he gives us more than we need so that we can reach out and begin to touch other lives. The National Prayer Chapel was never called to be a grocery store where everybody came and consumed what they wanted and then went on their merry way. The National Prayer Chapel must become a recruiting center to win the lost. And the love demonstrated among us must be so powerful that the lost will say, I've never been loved like I was when I came into this group of people. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never experienced this in church. My most common experience in church is judgment and criticism and loss. That has to change the prayer chapel. Or we'll never enter into what Jesus has for us. Love must be the greatest gift. 1 Corinthians 13. Oh, we need faith and we need hope. We need righteousness. We need love. And love is a verb. It's not an adjective. It's a verb. It's action. And the way we're going to enter into that is by carefully coming before the Lord until everything is washed and clean by the blood of Jesus. That's why he gave it to us. It has the power to heal us mind, body, and soul, and bind us together with others. Now, as I've shared today, do any of you see things you need to let go of? Do it. Do it. Let go of it. It's not worth letting it come between your heart and the heart of Jesus. It's not worth it. Fear, unbelief, let go of it. Don't fear him who can kill your body. Fear him who can cast your soul into hell. There must be a change in us. We are not going to go back to being the old prayer chapel. We'll never go there again. There must be a new rule of life among us 
and that is a life of repentance and belief, righteousness, and love. And if this is a journey you want to take together with others, you're at the right place. That's where we're headed. Let's be clear. Romans 6, verse 18. Being then made free from sin, ye, plural, ye, the church, became the servants of righteousness. That's the call of the prayer chapel. Mighty God, I know you're not concerned with with how many people are here. You're concerned with whether or not we will turn as you say, what is that to me? Why am I supposed to step into your life? And we turn and simply say, whatever Jesus says, we will do it. I know then your heart is stirred with compassion and love. Give us, give me the courage this week just to quickly act on everything you tell me to do. And Lord, if I make a mistake, forgive me and speak again. Thank you, Jesus. I pray in your holy name. Amen.